Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to you and we are humbled by the reality of what took place so many years ago. Our minds fail to fully grasp what it meant that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Father, we desire to know more, to understand more, to be in awe more, that we might worship you more. And I pray that our study of the Word this morning would do just that, would draw us to behold what took place in those events in the first century. Father, open our eyes, humble our hearts, and teach us from your word, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Christmas, as you know, has become such a behemoth of a holiday today. I, uh, it's large in terms of the amount of time it takes up in our year, and it's increasing, it's growing in that amount of time every year as the commercial season gets longer and longer for Christmas. But there's just so many things that have built up around this holiday, from the, all the gifts and all the traditions and all the folklore and stories and things that we tell every year, right? There's Christmas specials that you got to make sure that we watch, and we pass down to the next generation to make sure they watch as well. There's the traditions around the Christmas trees, the ornaments, the lights. We now have Christmas light competitions because it's not just enough to put lights up. We now have to make it a competition to see who's got the best lights. And there's just stuff everywhere. I mean, that's one of the things that stands out to me with Christmas is just stuff, right? We all designate space somewhere in our house or garage throughout the year for stuff to bring out this time of year. And that's just the decorative stuff. But then we buy more stuff to give or to put in our house somewhere. And we make lots of food stuff and we eat lots of food. I mean, everywhere we turn, there is just a lot of things that have been built up around this holiday. But all these things in the modern celebration of Christmas and the largeness and the grandeur and the fanfare that goes into Christmas celebrations today contrasts starkly with how the first Christmas actually happened. The first Christmas occurred with no earthly fanfare, no big celebration or feasts. It happened in a small hamlet in the far-off corner of the Roman Empire. You see, the Christian message, as we've already been reflecting on this morning, is built upon the fact that God became man, a mystery that we'll never fully be able to understand, but is nonetheless true. 
He came to dwell among us. He came in the person of Jesus. One of the other names given to him was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And you see, the arrival of God's Son was quiet and humble and surprising, which we'll see in three dynamics in our text before us. And these dynamics of the birth of Christ draw us into wonder and to worship. Let's read the text together. If you're not there already, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you don't have a personal copy of God's Word, feel free to use a Bible that's in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you'll find it on page 1018. 1018. Luke chapter 2. The historian Luke writes this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This passage is no doubt very familiar to all of us, and yet there's aspects of this that have been clouded and been confused through the years, and so it's helpful for us to go back to what was actually written and see how this amazing reality of God becoming man took place. Well, the first dynamic of the birth of Christ that we see here is number one, the unknowing agent of God's plan. We see the unknowing agent of God's plan, and we see this in verses one through three. You see, this passage opens by giving us the chronological and historical setting of Christ's birth. The birth of the Messiah did not happen in a vacuum. It did not happen in some spiritual place. It happened in a physical place. It happened on this planet, on a particular place, particular patch of ground, in a particular time in history. And that is what Luke tries to root for us, root this story in history. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. In those days connects us with the narrative that has already been happening. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that, that the chapter 1 ended with the birth and the circumcision and naming of John the Baptist. And so it's saying that long, not long after those events took place, in those days, 
Caesar Augustus sent out a decree. But who was this Caesar Augustus? Who was this man that had the audacity to decree that all the world should be registered? Well, Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius. He was the nephew of the great Julius Caesar. And when his uncle was murdered, he ruled Rome with Mark Antony and Lepidius for a while. But Lepidius dropped off the scene in 36 AD. Octavian became conflicted with Mark Antony, who became involved with Cleopatra of Egypt. And so they had a great naval battle. And Gaius Octavius won, thereby becoming the lone ruler in the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Senate in 27 BC named him Augustus, which means majesty. Majesty. He took the family name Caesar, which then turned into a title for succeeding generations. Caesar Augustus officially reigned from 27 BC to AD 14. Now, as we are handling the birth of Christ in these, these, these early years of his life, we're dealing with BC and AD. And if you're anything like me, it's easy to get confused, right? Because BC is counting, as you go forward in time, BC counts down in years until you get to 1. And then the following year was 1 AD, and then it started going up from there. So there's no zero year, there's only two ones back to back. BC counts down, AD goes up, and feel free to get confused because I do as well. So his, Caesar Augustus' reign spanned 27 BC to AD 14. And his reign was characterized by peace. Again, before this, there, there was some infighting that happened throughout the empire, and under Caesar Augustus, there was brought some great stability for the empire. And therefore, this time began to be known as the Pax Romana, which is Latin for the Roman peace. This time of peace went throughout the Roman Empire. The empire stretched from modern-day Spain in the west, France in the north, across Italy, Greece, and Turkey, with Syria to the east, and the North African coast as its southern extent. Basically, it was an empire with a Mediterranean pond right in the middle. And so most of the known world at this time was under the power of Rome with Caesar Augustus as the ruler. Now, with his ultimate authority, Caesar Augustus did many things. He, he built roads to connect the provinces together. He, he brought great security and travel. You could travel between, uh, across that Mediterranean area with great ease. But he also reinstated the worship of the Roman gods, building a number of, of temples throughout the empire. Now, those who lived outside of Rome and Italy, were, and were, but were a part of this Roman Empire, were brought under Roman rule through subjugation and through defeat. The Romans conquered the world and then, therefore, brought peace. So you can imagine all these people that are in these far-flung areas of the Roman Empire, although there might have been stability in a broad sense from uh, the empire's perspective, they were living as defeated people. They were not rejoicing necessarily in the peace. Even though they may have benefited from the Pax Romana, they were very aware of their subjugated status. 
And probably more than any of the people, the Jews were well aware of this. Israel, that had been God's chosen nation and set up to govern itself and, 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 to, and to be a light to the nations, because of their disobedience, had been sent into exile and since that time have been under Gentile rule. And that continued here into this time. The Rome had the power to tax them to gain money from them, and this only put salt in the wound for these Jews, to know that not only were we ruled by Gentiles, but we have to give our money to them as well. And that's why this decree was made. Caesar Augustus made this census in order to tax all those within his jurisdiction. It makes sense. You rule over all these people, you want to make some profit from all these people. Because it's expensive to govern all of them. And so he seeks to take a counting of the heads across the empire in order to know who to tax. Now, Luke's purpose in saying that Caesar Augustus sent this decree out so that all the world would be registered was not necessarily to say that he made a single decree that was then posted all throughout the empire at the same time for every people in all places throughout the Roman Empire to be uh, registered all at the same time. We have no historical record of a single decree that went throughout the entire empire. What commentators and historians uh, believe best fits with what Luke is saying here is that Caesar Augustus was the first one to decree that the Roman Empire be counted. But he did it in stages and he did it in regions throughout the course of his reign. It just so happened at this point that it affected Israel and Judea. Now there have been also those who have said, oh, this didn't really take place because you know what? Uh, Rome, when Rome did uh, censuses, they didn't require people to go to their hometowns. And so that's factually doesn't fit with the historical data. And so Luke got it wrong. Luke messed up. There's error here. But there is record of a census taken by Rome in Egypt in which people were required to go to their hometowns there in Egypt. And so it seems that uh, in certain times and places, uh, the Romans would allow certain local customs to stand for when these censuses took place. And I believe that's what took place here. Israel, as we know, is very ancestral in their understanding. They know what tribes they came from. They know what families they come from. That's why genealogies hold such a prominent place in the Scriptures. And so, it would be natural that in, in Israel, they would go back to their ancestral hometown. At this time as well, there is being ruled by Herod the Great, who was somewhat of a Jewish king and somewhat keeping the peace there in Israel. And so, it would make sense that this would fit that time period. There's others say that, well, the census wouldn't have taken place during the time of Herod while Herod was ruling because Herod taxed the people. Rome didn't ultimately do the taxing. It was Herod that did the taxing. And then he would gather up those taxes and pay tribute to Rome. So again, Luke got it wrong. But while it is the case that through most of Herod's rule, he did collect taxes and pay tribute to Rome, this time period was a time in which Herod's relationship with Rome was very rocky. He had fallen into disfavor with 
Rome. And so he was treated more as a subject than a friend, more as someone under Rome's authority than a peer. And so it would make sense as Herod's health is declining, he is going to pass away in 4 BC. And so as his health is declining, he's worried about who's going to take the throne after him. His sons are equally uh, worried about who's going to take the throne. They're getting competitive. Herod ends up slaughtering several of his sons. It's a messy time in the nation of Israel as the future of who's going to reign and rule in that time is unknown. And so it makes sense for Caesar looking over there and going, yeah, Herod's been doing a good job, but things are getting pretty rough over there. He's going to pass away soon. I don't know what's going to happen. I need to exert a little bit more control. I need to know what's going on. And so it would have been a good time for him to make an assessment of the domain before Herod's death in order to prepare for the future of the realm. But we learn more about this census in verse 2. Let's, let's look at it. He says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And now we're getting into the time of, of date. When did this happen? When, when was Quirinius governor of Syria? When did he decree this registration? And when ultimately then was Christ born? Because Luke is giving us this time data so that we would place in history when the Messiah was born. Now, as I said, we know that Jesus was born before Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Matthew chapter 2 records that Herod was paranoid that a king of, Israel, king of the Jews was born, and so he sent soldiers to, to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And so he was alive to carry out that task after Jesus was born. So Jesus had to have been born before 4 BC. But you see, Quirinius, mentioned here, was not governor of Syria, Syria until AD 6. Okay? So again, 4 BC, 4, 3, 2, 1, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. He didn't become governor until years later. And so this text seems to present a problem. That we have this time under Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great, and all of this is in BC. And then we says that this was a registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, which didn't take place till later. In other words, at the time this text was written, Quirinius wasn't governor yet. Now, there's been several suggestions put forward, many good ones, but the one I prefer takes the Greek word here translated first and instead translates it as before. So it would read, this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, And that is the footnote of the ESV uh, that is down below noted there. I believe that is an easy reading. You don't have to uh, go into uh, lots of other explanations. And, and this isn't the only place where that word first can be translated before. It's found also in John chapter 15, verse 18. And so, uh, translating a verse, this word as before, it's not alone here in the New Testament. So, we, it's basically saying that it, before 6 AD, this census took place. Before that happened is when these events took place. And I believe it's best to date the birth of Christ and the events here in this paragraph 
uh, between around 6 or 5 B.C., so a year or two before Herod passes away in 4 B.C. And I believe this does justice to the text, it does justice to the timeline, and helps us understand what's going on. And so Caesar calls for a census of his empire. It says of all the world, it, it means of all the inhabited world or all of the empire. Luke here is making a contrast between the actions of God and the actions of Caesar. Caesar thinks he's all-powerful. Caesar thinks that he can, he can judge the greatness of his realm and the greatness of his power by, by counting everybody within his realm, by making this census. He's going to exert his power. He's going to force everyone to be registered. He's going to bask in his prestige. And he thinks he's carrying out his own will. But in reality, he's carrying out the will of the one who is sovereign over him. God is at work even through the proud actions of a Roman emperor. God is sending Mary to Bethlehem so that the Messiah would be born in the promised city. And in this, Augustus is the unknowing agent of God's plan. God is working out His plan through the actions of this pagan ruler. As you know, over, 400, or over 700 years prior, the prophet Micah prophesied and indicated the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And now, this unbelieving emperor's actions leads to the fulfillment of that ancient promise. It's almost like there's someone greater who's writing this whole story, who gave that prophecy and is now bringing it about. Augustus, as we've noted, had been the, known as the one who brought peace to the empire and to the known world. But here, in the midst of his reign, God raises up the child who would bring peace to the whole world for all of time. And it's here in the events of this first Christmas that we see the sovereign, powerful hand of God as He works through human events to bring about His will. And this should prompt our awe and our worship. No human being can bring about His will through the actions of, of somebody else unknowingly. And yet God is is the Lord over all. He's over this entire universe. He created it, and He then exerts His power and authority over it all. But of course, we live in a day where His Lordship is not recognized. It's not submitted to. It's scoffed. It's not respected. The people of our nation and our world do not submit themselves to the Lord. Instead, they rebel against Him, trying to ignore His existence and giving no heed to His Word. But we who have been redeemed are able to sing the notes of a different song. We don't sing the song of rebellion, we sing the song of worship. We join with the psalmist in Psalm 115 that says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. For the sake of, of your steadfast love and, and faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. 
and no sort of pagan rulers, unbelieving rulers can thwart his purpose. They are agents in the fulfillment of his plan. What a mighty and wise Lord we serve, amen? And just as he used rulers of the world in the ancient world, he can do the same today. He, we can take heart that the Lord, the sovereign one, is in control of all. He will ultimately get the glory no matter who's in charge. And that doesn't mean that he brings about necessarily good in the short term, but it will mean, mean he brings about good in the long term. He's got the long game in view. Again, this prophecy of, of Beth, being, Messiah being born in Bethlehem took over 700 years to be fulfilled. Now, we do not know all that God is doing in our day and age, but we can trust that God is good and that He is at the helm of history. And this is a tremendous reminder that we can gain from seeing here that Caesar Augustus was an unknowing agent of God's plan. But the second dynamic that we see in this text is the unsuspecting town of Messiah's birth. The unsuspecting town of Messiah's birth. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 4 narrows the narrative. It's talking about the whole world going to be registered. And then here in verse 4, it focuses on one specific family, namely on the man Joseph. We've already been told in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, that Joseph is of the house of David. But here it takes on special significance because David has to go, or, or Joseph has to go to the ancestral town of David, which is Bethlehem. And so we can imagine Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, and they hear of the edict of Caesar Augustus, and they realize they've got to pack up and go, and they begin to make preparations to travel south. Nazareth, Galilee being in the north part of Israel, Bethlehem being in Judea in the southern part of Israel, and Again, it says that he travels with his wife, Mary. And it says that it is uh, it's, uh, his betrothed, his, the one to whom he is betrothed. Now, as we talked about in chapter 1, to be betrothed or engaged meant that this couple was legally bound together. They were, they were seen as, as together. They required a divorce to separate from betrothment. Uh, but there was a, a year of waiting before they, they had their ceremony and before they consummated the marriage. And so we have a question here of, of whether, uh, are they actually married yet or are they still in that waiting period? I think that because they traveled together, it makes sense that they are technically married at this point, that they have had their wedding ceremony and they are seen as man and wife, but what Luke is trying to tell us by saying that it is his betrothed is saying that they have not yet had intercourse, that they've, they've refrained from sexual relations, which is consistent with the biblical text both here and in Matthew. 
It would be strange for a betrothed couple to travel together in such an intimate way without having been married yet. And Matthew chapter 1 tells us that after Joseph had the dream, he was going to put Mary away quietly. Joseph has a dream and it says he then took Mary as his wife. And so I believe in the time that Mary returned to Nazareth after visiting Elizabeth. She's uh, three months pregnant at that point. Then during that intervening months, her pregnancy begins to show. Joseph quietly considers putting her away. The angel comes to him and says, no, 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 this is of the Lord. And he then takes Mary as his wife. And so it seems that they made the marriage official before traveling to Bethlehem. And so Joseph and Mary leave Galilee together. They travel south to Judea. Remember that that Mary has made this journey already only six months prior. She traveled, remember, to the the, the, to Elizabeth's house, which was in the hill country of Judea. She made essentially the identical journey earlier in her pregnancy. And there's two routes that this, this couple could have taken. They could have cut straight through the Sumerian territory, which is about 70 miles down the, the, the hill country of Israel. Or, as most Jews don't like going through Samaria because Samaritans were considered half-breeds and they didn't associate with some the Samaritans, they traveled, uh, they would go out to the, the Jordan Rift Valley and they would go down the Jordan River until they get to Jericho and then they would climb up into the hill country, turning uh, west and going up into Jerusalem and then just south to Bethlehem. And that was 90 miles. We don't know what route they took. Either one would have been grueling, taken many days, and Mary is very pregnant. Now, oftentimes, the story is told with Mary riding on a donkey, and we can understand why, uh, being as pregnant as she was. But there's no indication in the biblical text, either here or in Matthew, that any donkey was involved. Some have suggested that maybe they borrowed one. I find that hard to believe. Donkeys were expensive. The, The rich were able to own them, but Mary and Joseph, as the text continues to tell us, that they were not of great means. They were a poor couple. And therefore, to, to have a donkey uh, would not uh, seem to make sense for the economic status of Mary and Joseph. And so, uh, Joseph leads his young bride, again, probably young teens, 12 to 14 potentially, to travel to their ancestral town of Bethlehem. Now, I have to imagine that the couple, having been told by the angel the the fact that this Messiah was coming, that they had to have known all these prophecies that had been handed down through Israel up until this day, particularly Micah 5.2, the fact that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And I don't know, if I'm Mary and if I'm Joseph and we're talking about this and we're kind of going, hey, isn't this child that is here, isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Yeah, you know, were they even thinking about maybe traveling there independently just to like, you know, you wondered if there was any conflict there in their mind to say, uh, what's going to happen here? We don't know. What we do know is that the Lord used Caesar Augustus to bring them to Bethlehem. Now, Luke doesn't mention Isaiah's prophecy, or Micah's prophecy, rather. Matthew does, in Matthew 2, verse 6, quoting Micah 5.2, that the baby would be born in Bethlehem. 
But it's no doubt on, on Luke's mind as he writes this account, knowing that that Messiah needed to be born in Bethlehem. And so it says, they went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. That's what that, that name means. It sat in the hill country of Judea, next to a fertile valley that grew grain, in which we can understand where the house of bread came from. Throughout biblical history, it remained a small town. It was small when, when David was born there, and it seems that it remained small even at the time of Jesus' birth as well. Bethlehem sat five miles to the south of Jerusalem. It was historically dwarfed by the great capital city of Jerusalem. Interestingly, Bethlehem is known as the city of David here. Even though throughout a lot of the Old Testament, the city of David is, is known as, Beth, or as Jerusalem. There's such a 2 Samuel 5, 7 or verse or 9. The, these identifications of, of, the, of Jerusalem as the city of David. And yet here, it says that Bethlehem is the city of David. Letting us know that it was there where David was born. Where he hearkened from. And so Bethlehem, this small city, this small town, oh little town of Bethlehem as we sang this morning, sitting five miles south of Jerusalem, had known for over 700 years that a Messiah would be born in their midst. The residents of the town knew that at some point a Messiah was going to arise from the city, but at this time they didn't know. They didn't know that this couple this poor couple walking into town looking to find a place to stay would be the couple that would bring about this Messiah. They did not suspect that the promised deliverer would enter the world at that time. And this leads us to the third dynamic in this text, and that is the unspectacular birth of God's Son. The unspectacular birth of God's Son in verses 6 through seven. Now, the book of Luke is the only place that records the actual birth of Jesus Christ. And it does so here with surprising restraint. I mean, how would you want to record the entering of God into human history? You would want to use lots of uh, adjectives to describe how great and amazing and on and on and on we choose adjectives, right, to describe this. And yet that's not what Luke does. And frankly, that's because that's not how God brought it about. He brought it about in such a quiet and simple, ordinary way. Now, unfortunately, through the years, in our many retellings, both through movies and Christmas pageants and everything else, our understanding of what took place this, uh, on the, around the birth of Christ has got some other things attached to it that are not necessarily accurate or not necessarily found in the text. The, the donkey being one of them, right? We kind of assume that as fact, but it's not found anywhere in the text. 
Or another common one is how many wise men, right? We, well, the Bible doesn't say how many magi, how many wise men came. It just says that three gifts were offered, and so we three kings of Orient are, right? That's the way those things are written. And so, as we look, we need to try to look at these verses with fresh eyes this morning to understand accurately, best we understand, what took place. Now look at verse 6 with me. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, one of the things that has gotten, I think, distorted through history is that we have this perception that Mary and Joseph arrived to Bethlehem on the night that, that Mary was going to give birth. In fact, they, they cross the threshold of Bethlehem and the contractions are getting serious. And Joseph is either pulling the donkey or carrying and knocking on doors in a frantic uh, display of trying to find a place for his wife to give birth. And and what ends up happening, or is depicted, is people are in a huff, open the door and say, no, no room here, and they slam the door, and then they end up at this inn, right, and, and they, they see the no vacancy sign, and, and uh, they still knock, and it says, no, we're all going, get out of here, and said, well, there's a stable out back, and so they, they, they simply head out there, and so what ends up hap- being described is this, this frantic search for a place and a very cold-hearted Bethlehem. Uh, residents that have no compassion on a woman who is about to give birth. But I want you to notice the first phrase of verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. There seems to be that there was a, at least a little bit of time that elapsed from the time they arrived in Bethlehem to the time she gave birth. While they were there. That could be a day. That could be a week. That could be even a month, right? People came and stayed for a while to do this registration thing. We don't know how long they were in Bethlehem before she gave birth. But let's break from the notion that, uh, again, she was having strong contractions. The baby's about to pop as they're quickly trying to make the last few miles to Bethlehem. Now, the, the story is also frequently told that as if Bethlehem was so full of people, he went to every single door in town. He went to the, the, the local motel and, and still could not find a place. He was, he was met with angry, cold-hearted people and ultimately an innkeeper who maybe had a sympathetic wife who said, at least let him use the stable in the back. And so they show him around to the place of where the animals are kept. Now, I believe there's some, several problems with this view. The problem is that it fails to account for the hospitality of, in Middle Eastern cultures. The Middle East, even to this day, is known for its tremendous hospitality. And you, you get that record throughout the Old Testament, that people were, would go into a town and they would be taken in by somebody, and that person would, would treat those guests as if they were their own family. And sometimes at the cost of their own family, they would protect those guests. They would feed them. They would offer the best to them. They would kill the fatted calf. They would do all they can in order to to house these people. But not only that, but Joseph wasn't a nobody. Sure, he may have had some distant connections, but, but 
Again, the ancestral memory of of ancient Israel goes back very far. All Joseph had to do was was talk to people and say, my name is Joseph, son of Heli, son of, son of, son of, and give his genealogy, and there would be a, a point of commonality with someone there in Bethlehem. He would be seen as family. Because there were lots of families that came from Bethlehem. I mean, David's family wasn't the only family. But David's family had notoriety. And so, not just was he just from any Bethlehem family, he was from David's family. And so, he would have had, uh, be able to, again, have a, a certain amount of privileged place to say, well, he's from David. Yeah, of course he's from here. He's part of us. He's one of us. He would have had relatives there. But on top of this, just think, if they had arrived and found no house, no place to stay made for humans, and they had given birth in a, in a stall or a stable, and, and then Mary's family, which we know lives really close. Remember, Elizabeth lived in the hill country of Judea, and they had found out that, that Mary's new husband had, the only thing he could find for her was a stable prepared for animals, and they're going, why didn't you bring her over here? We're, we're so close. We're so nearby. Come have the baby over here, and then you can go back to Bethlehem to be registered. They would have been shocked and astounded. And it also seems to kind of cast a poor light on Joseph, that the poor guy can't find anything for his, his new bride. I mean, he's, he's trying, but he's kind of incompetent for being able to find a hospitable place for his wife to give birth. And so I believe that based upon these cultural factors and, as, and some other factors that we'll see in a minute, that Mary and Joseph were welcomed in when they came to Bethlehem. There was no room, and we'll explain what that means, but they were welcomed in and given a place in some relatives, no doubt. They were not left on the street. They were not sent to a stable on the edge of town. The simple Jewish peasants of Bethlehem would have welcomed the simple Jewish peasants of Joseph and Mary into their home, who was expecting a child any day now. So then what is the inn that there was no room for? It says, the end of verse 7, there was no place for them in the inn. And what about the manger? Okay, if they welcomed into a home, why in the world is there a manger mentioned? Well, this inn, I believe, can be better translated. And if you have the ESV, you have a footnote uh, that goes down, and, and it tells you that it could be translated guest room. I believe that is the better translation. Because this same word is used in chapter 22, verses 10 through 12, in which Jesus sends disciples into the city to prepare for the Last Supper. And he says to go to a person and ask do you have a guest room available? Same word here, a guest room. And if Luke wanted to use a word that indicated a, a, an inn, a commercial inn or motel, as we understand it, where, where strangers and travelers would come and, and rest their animals and find a room for the night, he could have used a different word. Could have used a different word. It's a word that's used later in the book of Luke in chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan takes up the injured traveler and takes him to an inn. 
That's a different word than it's used here. And so I believe guest room is best understood here. What Luke is saying is that they were brought in, but they, were, they laid him in a manger when he was born. And the, the natural readers, the first century readers would read this and go, laid in a manger, wasn't he in a guest room? And, and then they read the next phrase and it says, because there was no place for them in the guest room. And they go, oh, wow. It was, there was no room or place for them even in a guest room, so they had to be somewhere else. And so it does, I believe, communicate how full the city was. So then, where was Jesus born? Where was he born where there was a manger? And again, I think this has suffered from lack of knowledge of houses and customs of the day. And the concept that Jesus was born in a stable of sorts comes from the mention of a manger. And rightly so, for our understanding of a feeding trough, we know feeding troughs to be in barns, to be in stables, to be in separate buildings in which we keep the animals. But you see, for centuries in Middle Eastern homes, the animals were kept inside at night. And we don't understand that because, okay, maybe a cat or dog. Um, but a sheep, a horse, a donkey, that's going to be, that's going to stink. But this is what they did. And they, again, they've done it for centuries. The reason why is because animals, as we said earlier about the donkey, were valuable property. It took a lot to purchase animals. And so theft, if animals are left out, was very high. You're, you have a better way to watch over your animals if you bring them in the house and tie them up at night. But secondly, they acted as heaters. In the cold winter nights, they warmed up the house. And so these rooms were typically one large main room that the family, the people, lived in and inhabited. This is where they cooked. This is where they slept. This is where they, they played. This is the living room in the fullest sense of the word. Okay? Every, all bit of living took place in this room. We know this was the case, for example, with Jesus' um, mention of a lamp, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you light a lamp and it casts light on everything in the room, there, everything in the house, thereby recognize it. So it's really a one-room house that everybody lived in. But on, the, on one end of this, this, room, this, this, these houses were slanted a bit so that washing and cleaning, all of that would run off down to an area that was depressed in which the animals lived. And there's there where the door was, and they would usher the animals in and out at night. There'd be stairs that would go up to the raised portion where the people would live. And here's the thing. At the edge of the place where the people lived, and before it dipped down into where the, the animals were, there were mangers that were dug into the bedrock. So the animals, in the middle of the night, as they're getting hungry, they can simply feed there in the house. There were mangers in the homes. And every, every person from this time understood that. The peasants had the same kind of homes. The, the shepherds, as we're going to see next week, when they hear that they're going to find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, they go, oh, it's in a house like ours. This, this, this great one that's being announced isn't in some palace somewhere. It's in a house just like ours. We have a manger in our house. This was a normal thing. Now, ancient tradition, just to mention, going back to even the 2nd century, holds that Jesus was born in a cave. You're going to Israel 
with uh, the group that's coming here from the church in a few months, and you happen to visit Bethlehem, and you go to the Church of the Nativity, and you go down, you can go see a cave that is claimed through thousands of years, has preserved the tradition that in this cave, Jesus was born. And it is true that sometimes these, these, these homes were built around or off of caves. And so it is possible that, uh, that in connection with what I've just described, could be found in a cave. Uh, we don't know. Could have been a cave. Could have just been a normal home. But with all this as background, we see that Joseph and Mary are staying in someone's home, and the time comes for her to give birth. In verse 7, then gives the ordinary account. It says, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Wrapping in swaddling cloths was a common practice of the day. They believed that if they didn't wrap up the baby tight, that the limbs would be formed funny. And so they would uh, wrap them up tight for the first several months and laid him in a manger for a place of safety. And this is how Luke chooses to tell us how the Son of the Most High was born among men. This is what we call the incarnation, where God incarnated into human flesh to dwell among us. And friends, it's here at this manger scene in a simple peasant home in the first century that we gaze upon a simple baby that looks very similar to the babies that we've had in our own homes. And we stop and stare at this baby because it's unlike any other. He looks the same. But we know there's something tremendous going on. We see the short little breaths that he takes. His little lungs take in air. His little heart, put your hand upon his chest and the little heart beating 130 to 160 beats a minute. He's got those cute little fingers and toes that babies have. Just the miniature, the tiny ears, the tiny nose. And he's, qu- he's quiet now as he's wrapped up laying in this manger. But he was screaming just before and as he came into this world, as all babies do. And yet this little one, who's so helpless, so small, is the creator of the world. The one who spoke the universe into existence. The one who made his mother and stepfather. He had enjoyed fellowship with God the Father for all eternity. And now he was constrained to the body and the intellect of a newborn. In the beginning was the Word, John writes. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Son enjoyed fellowship for all of eternity with the Father. But now, as one early church father said, the Word became speechless. The Word of God now had no words, only cries. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power was now dependent on his mother for everything. He couldn't roll over or move or much less feed himself, utterly helpless. 
And again, we wonder, how is this even possible? How is God be able to be constrained in such a tiny package? But friends, this is the wonder of the incarnation. It should give us pause every Christmas season. When we stop to think about God becoming man, our minds are rightly blown away. How would we suggest that God send His Son? If God was consulting with us on how He should send His Son to earth, what should surround that? We would try to do something the whole world could see. Something that's on great display for all to to witness. And yet, that's not what He does. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, Jesus entered the world the same way that you and I did. He didn't take a special pass. He came to identify with us starting from day one. Friends, he he was born in a common person's home, among the common people. He came to save the common people. God came to save every one of us. He came to identify with the lowly. He was not born in a large estate to wealthy landowners. He was not born in a palace to a king and a queen. He spent his first days among the poor and the socially insignificant ones. And in this, we see that Jesus is a Savior for you and for me. He was happily born into the lowly social class. And therefore, he is the Savior of the poor and the rich, the low and the high, as the visit by the shepherds and then the wise men will illustrate. He is the Savior of all people. So this means this morning, friends, that Jesus is the Savior for you. He's the only one that is God in human flesh that can be your substitute. You see, the birth of Christ is only significant because of what He will do later on at the cross what the rest of the gospel tells us. Because this eternal God who became man came to to die a death that we deserved. And if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we can experience that salvation that He came to give us. But it requires faith on our part to trust in Jesus, surrender ourselves to Him, bow to Him as Lord. Not as a simple add-on to our life, not just to make our lives better and to make us feel better, but a, a Jesus that we surrender to completely. Friends, that is what repentance and faith is, is that we renounce the sovereignty that we think we have over our lives and we confess the sovereignty that God has over us already. And this is the good news of Christmas, that God sent His Son Jesus to rescue us from our sin. There's no other way that we could be saved other than God sending His Son to be born of Mary that night 2,000 years ago. And so let us praise and worship God for this quiet arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for your word that describes the simple and yet profound reality of the giving of your son. Your son, possessing glory 
and power and majesty with you for all of eternity. Here, being born of a woman and taking on the person, the body of a newborn. Father, our minds cannot grasp the wonder of that moment. And yet we thank you for it because it's in that birth that we know we have hope because you have come to rescue us. You have come to be with us. And for that, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.